Welcome to Kafaru Cast, everyone. It's snowing in Denver again, which sucks. Um, I got Frank across from me, and uh, the great Kip Folks from Under Armour uh, is on the mic right now. What's happening, man? Aaron, Frank, how you guys doing, man? Good. I just had to release a demon earlier. <laughs> Going a little bit better. <laughs> yeah, we had a rough morning uh, meeting this morning, but uh, things are looking up. <laughs> <laughs> what uh you want to tell for those who don't know tell everybody a little bit about kind of where uh where you started and and uh what developed with under armor where you're at now because um that thing blew up oh I'm trying to think 2002 or three it really seemed to start really getting into the swing of things but uh give give everybody your history with under armor and so they can know what's going on yeah no it's uh one of those crazy stories when you repeat it you almost you almost have to pinch yourself. Yeah, we were two Maryland grads from University of Maryland. I played football. My partner played, uh, uh, excuse me, I played lacrosse. My partner played football. And, you know, he, we didn't know each other in college, so we weren't buddies. And we just got introduced after college, and uh, someone said, hey, you got to try this. And he had this tight-fitting T-shirt that he was trying to get underneath pads, and he's like, you know, relentless about it, and I tried it and fell in love with it, and and so we just, in 1996, you know, like working out of his grandmother's basement, and, you know, as as a lot of entrepreneurs know, those those early days are kind of a blur, but, you, you know, we just did anything and everything we could to keep the company afloat and try to get our product out there, and then, yeah, I would say like 2000, you know, I think maybe we did like a million dollars in sales and it in <laughs> fast forward I ended up taking over manufacturing and supply chain and, and innovation and footwear and uh, product development and you know, I launched the outdoor group and you close your eyes and next thing you know you're a five billion dollar company and uh, it's just a crazy ride I was born in Logan Utah I used to live in Longmont Colorado my dad's a marine I was just a go-getter. I just wanted to do anything I could to help the company. So I kind of traveled the world making product for a long time and then became CMO, uh, COO. And and then a couple years ago, I left, you know, just burned myself out. Uh, what you start with and what you end with are two different things when you get big like that. And, uh, you know, always impressed to see people like you guys doing it. And, and making waves in the industry and changing the way products made. So, I mean, big fan of you guys. I just want to give you guys a huge shout-out because I use the product, listen to what you guys do, super technical. And and that's what we were at the beginning, man. We were diehard into the product. How much uh, How much did that change for you um, as, it, as it grew? Meaning, were you having to take a lot more of a business role and less of a, I'm going to go out and play a bunch of sports and hunt a bunch and fuck around with my gear, and then you, pretty soon you're behind a desk all the time. Did that ever change for you? And if it did, kind of when? Yeah, I mean, I think you get to that size where you're, you know, I would say like, you know, we were probably a half a billion, uh, and you're just finding really, really hard to get back out into the field because you're just – you're in meetings and, and, and you're in supplier meetings and you're traveling and then you wake up one day and you're like, geez, when's the last time I was in a, a, a locker room of a football or a lacrosse or, you know, I used to try to do these amazing hunts and, you know, 
as an executive, I'd get called like on the second day of a five-day hunt, and I'd have to leave. You know, so it, it changes, man, and it, it sucks that I couldn't realize that it was actually the most important thing I could have done was stay connected, but it's the beast, man. It just eats you up. So I would say like $250, $500 million, things just start getting squirrely. <laughs> I don't think we're going to have to worry about that. At least I hope not. I still yeah. like to hunt six, eight months out of the year. <laughs> uh, what, what do you think, uh, it, looking at it now, I mean, how much of a, of a part do you have in Under Armour now? Zero. So, and I love that. I was just going to say, looking at that now, how much has Under Armour changed and has the kind of the focus of uh, where you and, and the founder were, were taking it, has it changed as far as the focus? Is there anything you look at and you think, you know, kind of, damn, I, I wish they wouldn't have done that? Or do you just kind of stay oblivious and be happy? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. And, and a lot of people have asked that in a similar way. The only thing I can say is, man, life is going to change. And if you try to hold on to it, It'll eat you up. When it comes to, like, a brand that was so dedicated to the, the athletes, they've just lost their way. They're dedicated, but it's just not the same special sauce. But there's some great people there and some really passionate. And, you know, I never count them out, and I love the brand. The logo means a lot to me, and, and I hope they kill it. It has no interest to me, though. I don't care whether they win or lose. It's, it's I have put that behind me. And I have new horizons, and you almost have to do that. I don't like looking back. I, I, I don't look backwards, and it's not great on <laughs> relationships, but I'm always about what, what's happened next. Yeah, and you can say the F word as much as you'd like on this podcast if you choose to do so. <laughs> it's, it's explicit, so you can't get in trouble. Um, we're actually the only – I think we are the only hunting podcast that's uh, – it's kind of a – unique uh the way this podcast works not to you know talking about how you started and things change we frank has always been frank i've always been me it's baked in the cake and we didn't really want to change when we did the podcast so if we wanted to tell some horrible joke and we wanted people to feel That's free smart. well yeah i mean we've had some Bible thumpers some sent some horrible shit to us occasionally but and i get it you know i don't if if that's your views that's fine but I'm thinking, man, my crew of people, we talk on here just like we would talk at a hunting camp or at the archery range or whatever, and we didn't want to change that. It's it's created a cult. I think that's authentic, and that's what you got to be. Yeah, and, and that's what we're, you know, trying to just stay who we are and not uh, not change too much. And uh, it can be difficult, uh, you know, it, at times when I say difficult, meaning – when you see some people or companies advancing by faking their way through it, but I, I try to keep in mind it's kind of short-lived or short-lived, like seems to catch up with you when you're not kind of true to who you are. Um, have you experienced that a lot, kind of watching, working with different athletes and, and companies and things like that? Because you got obviously being a superpower, you had your hands in everything. Yeah, no, I mean, you nailed it, right? It, it, if you don't have the discipline to stay authentic, and to drive to your drumbeat, you will get dragged down a path that you just lose passion about. You might do something for some revenue. You might do something for a product idea or maybe a partner that you want to work with. And you know in your gut it's not authentic, but you do it for some other reason. And then that reason seems to disappear later. 
and you can't fucking remember what it was, and you're like, why am I doing this? And we had a lot of those moments, man. And I'm a hard-charging dude. I was tough in the business world, dude. I I came back to that all the time. And I think once you lose some of those core employees, you know, if you guys had 10 guys or 50 guys or 100 guys that were part of your original crew, and 60% of them go on and, and they have success other places or they go start up their own thing, that's amazing, but it has an impact on you, 100%. So if you can stay that way, dude, I just... Yeah, you may give up some revenue, you may give up some margin, you may give up some consumers. In the long run, I think it'll pay dividends. It seemed to be working now. I don't... I. Uh, you guys are doing awesome. It's weird growing uh, a company without a real big marketing budget. Like right now, we don't... We're putting all the money into the growth of the company and took it away from marketing, obviously for good good reason, just to keep up with the growth as far as getting product in and keeping quality control uh, keeping a handle on that, but it's kind of well, interesting. I would go ahead. I would say that I would say that you made a disciplined approach to put product first because your best marketing is word of mouth, and actually you're doing that. So that's another way to look at it. You didn't shift it. Yes, maybe on a on a finance accounting sheet, it's not listed as marketing, but what you guys have with word of mouth is 100% marketing, and that's because your product stands up. So I frame that up a different way, and I, I give you a lot of credit for that. And that's what we did in the early days, and, and maybe they've lost their way a little bit. Yeah, I, you know, the early days, um, I can't speak because I, I don't buy a ton of Under Armour stuff now. Uh, shoes occasionally, some sleepless workout <laughs> shirts. But I remember back at Sportsman's Warehouse had the uh, kind of an olive green uh, kind of the compression top that I wore under, yep. you know, anytime I was hunting, I, and it was honestly at that time, I wasn't quite as fit as I probably should have been to wear something that tight, which is why <laughs> a shirt went over the top of it. Uh, but yeah, you know, it's one of those deals where that was kind of, um, I don't want to say elite, but, uh, it was, it was more like the, if you saw the kind of the pipe hitters started wearing that stuff, like whether it be locals or, uh, you know, obviously watching different, you know, football or whatever on TV, it was yeah. more of the elite thing. And then it became over time more of the cool thing. And then as it became the cool thing, a lot of guys, and, and honestly, like myself, I, I kind of distanced, started to distance myself from it. Cause I'm like, Jesus, I'm in the gym. I used to be the only guy with Under Armour on, fuck, everybody's got it on now, you know? And, and, and when you have that mentality to yeah, be a little cycle. bit different. Yeah. Yeah. It's a cycle. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. <laughs> You know, it's interesting, that, that uh, 0012 uh, embroidered mock turtleneck we offered in 19 colors, and I made 300 million of those over my career. And I can tell you right now, when that Sportsman's Warehouse product shipped, or Cabela's, or Bass Pro, or even Dick's Pretty Goods, that changes the course of the hunting industry. Because prior to that mock turtleneck, most of what was on the shelf was cotton. Yeah, I, I would agree. Um, every now and then you'd find some kind of a poly, you know, thermal deal yeah. that didn't look great. Uh, wasn't and that was mostly from the climbing industry, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, like, in that time I was in Washington, and I was mountain biking a, f- a fair bit and hunting, and then that just, it was one of those times when you're, like, right now I, I get confused because I have so much clothing to choose from. Uh, it was pretty easy. I grabbed that as my base layer and then I, you know, had a fleece that, I mean, I didn't have a lot to choose yeah. from. And so 
I remember, it, and at that time I was on a budget uh, quite a bit more than now, and so I had two of them. Uh, one, obviously, after three to four days of wearing that thing, it'd start to stink, and I'd swap it out, wash it in the creek. And it was just one of those tops that I wore for probably 10 years, eight years. And then it finally started wearing That's out over really- time. Uh, but but it was at that time, that was when you guys were really starting to gain traction. Is that like that 2002, That's three, four it, time? That's it, man. Thing? I mean, you know, it's funny is that that product from a football, you know, from a from a football standpoint, you know, wearing it under your pads in a November game, October game or you know, that was our go-to cold-weather product. It was probably not really for really, really cold. And then we had light-fitting stuff that was for heat, heat, heat gear. And, you know, it's just a pretty simple product line. And, and your comment about, you know, whether it was your budget or whether the options back then were just less is like, I think companies overcomplicate it today uh, and they overmarket and they, they're hurting their consumer because people just have too many choices. So I really like when people have a simple and clear product line with less choices. Um, I call it the salsa effect. We did a study on people buying salsa, and you found out that when you had 64 salsas in the supermarket and you went down to 12, you actually went up in revenue. Gotcha. Less choices is better. There's a lot of salsa in Under Armour now. It's actually somewhat confusing. <laughs> um in in my yeah. more powerlifting days, I wore this specific. I still have that blue one, which has got to be ten years old. It was a sleeveless Under Armour shirt, and they fit correctly. The sleeves didn't like hang way out over the shoulders. It was just what I figured a, a thought a, a sleeveless t shirt should fit like. And so, I probably that, put that heat seal on myself. <laughs> well, it was easy because that was the only one you offered, so I couldn't fuck it up. Now. Yeah. There's multiple options of what you can get now, but at the time, I mean, you go on, you go on some of these hunting brands and you click on base layer and you get freaking twenty five options. Yeah, yeah. I think it's because people are soft and they want to be comfortable all the time in any situation. Yeah, I mean that makes sense. Well, I think also too, you can't buy hard work or buy discipline or intestinal fortitude, but you can buy some fucking cool ass clothing. Um, you can buy good binos and you can buy your yeah. way into looking good. Um, Frank, you're laughing. What are you thinking? No, I'm just thinking about, uh, thinking about my first piece of Under Armour back when I was in, uh, eighth grade for <laughs> basketball. I think one of my buddies nice. that was on the team, he had that, that same sleeveless, uh, Under Armour shirt, the heat gear, I guess it would be, um, the same, the same shirt that Aaron's talking about. And I saw that and I was like, damn, that's badass. And then I asked my parents to get it for me, and it was like, I don't know, 35, 40 bucks. And they're like, that much for a sleeveless shirt? I'm like, ah, but all the badass athletes are wearing them. <laughs> you know, they had, like, college athletes wearing them. I don't know if the pros are wearing them yet, but, um, yeah, we got, I got that. And then I think my next year at freshman football, we, I got a, a, a heat gear, um, one of those tight shirts that you're talking about. It was baby blue because that was our high school color. Um, and, uh, yeah, that was a little pricey as well. But, yeah, I've been – Wearing that stuff, I think I still have the sleeveless shirt from the eighth grade. Actually, I, I really do. It's in my it's in my closet. I was cleaning Bro, my closet. I will the other buy day. that off you because I have no real Under Armour from the old days. I'll I'll buy that and frame <laughs> it. It's so funny. No, I, dude, I don't hold on to shit. Yeah, but I it. love hearing those stories, man. Because that that was our wheelhouse right there. What you just described was we owned that shit. What when and when That's you awesome. when you say that, I would I would agree. Um, it 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 it, it, it you know kind of going through the um well Kip how old are you 
I'm uh, going to turn 49 in October. Okay, so we're we're fairly you know close. You got me. Uh, what am, how old? You got me by 40. <laughs> I'm 44. Do. All right, so g- rewinding. Right, we're not too far apart. That was the elite cult like thing to have. That's what I was talking about. All the heavy hitters in the gym. You'd go in, and if there was a dude grabbing 200-pound dumbbells to bench, more than most likely he had some fucked-up shirt he cut the sleeves off himself or he had an Under Armour shirt on. That that was back in the day. And then now, you know, if you go to a Dick's Sporting Goods, let's say, there's pink, orange, yellow, 40 different tops. There's I don't know how many shoes you guys offer. And I'm not complaining about that, but it is Under Armoured out. And you've got the rock uh, full body on the side of the building. You know, I mean, it it is definitely – become a, a monster and it's in I don't know who knows what obviously Under Armour is doing now but when you guys started did you have any idea that it would become a quarter of what it is now you know it's funny um I did not but I can give a lot of credit to uh, the CEO and founder um who's still there still operating the company Kevin Plank had no money uh he borrowed my credit cards so we could fucking go run up my <laughs> credit cards to get get inventory he always had a vision man vision is powerful and it took me a while to develop that skill from him but yeah he wanted to be as big as the biggest players in the industry you know nike does like 50 billion i think under armor does five but we get we get people to this day think we're the same size as them (laughs) He had that vision from the very early. I think I took a long time to develop it, but I saw the passion in him, man, and, and I, I'll be honest. I was like, fuck, i got to stick with this guy. He's a madman. Yeah, well, so on your end, when did it take where you were like, I guess where you were like took a step back and be like, holy shit, this is going to work. Like this is, <laughs> this Yeah, is- so it's a, I know the exact point in time when I was like, oh, my God, we did this. Like, it's bigger than I thought. It's bigger than I ever imagined. And we were shipping the box that represented the $1 billion in sales for that year. And I think it was in June or July. Um, and I went into the bathroom and cried. Freaking out? I couldn't. It's the first time I took a breath, man. <laughs> so at that point, you were like, okay, we, we've got this thing licked. Um, is, was there any, as we're growing at a smaller company, right, and, and we're, you know, into the multiple millions, there's these uh, hitches in the giddy-up we're running into every now and then, whether it be inventory or just flat-out getting, because we're made yep. here, getting product or whatever, how many like crisis did you guys have any hitches in the giddy up where you were like this might this might end us or did was it relatively smooth with just some growing pains? No, no, we there was catastrophic stuff. I mean, you know, when I first started running all the manufacturing, I had 20 shops in the United States and I ran them all. Some were owned by me, most were owned by others, and we were made in the USA. So I would say that that first launch into going into Central and South America and then to Asia was catastrophic change for us. Quality was fucking shit. I had to like burn product that was no good. I launched a women's line that was horrible. Those were in the early days. We had heat seals peeling off and all kinds of stuff. That transition of manufacturing is very difficult. I call it I call it vine-to-vine manufacturing. You never let go of one vine before you grab the other because the monkey falls out of the tree. 
it's so that but then later as we got bigger we had some catastrophic like marketing things and then some personnel stuff so yeah man like the bruises were many <laughs> uh, did uh so when when did you get out of it totally uh it's right about three and a half years ago uh i got out was it like uh finally getting over a bad divorce and it was a big relief on stress and things like that or was it more of a some regret and am i or am i going to regret this or how'd that play out yeah, I mean, I'll be brutally honest, and people that may listen to this, uh, they, it, may, it may shock them. Uh, or it may actually fit what they see happen at a lot of companies. I got complacent. I thought I was special. Um, I started making bad decisions, and I lost my edge, man. And uh, I still ran a good ship. I still had people that loved working for me. I had a, a ton of the company that was underneath me. But yeah, I made bad decisions and I, uh, I blew up and, uh, and I knew that maybe I should have left a couple years earlier and I just kept trying to prove I was more. And that's something from my childhood that I just, I fight with is I just want to prove to people I'm fucking better than you think. And I just held on too long, man. I made some bad decisions and then I had to step away. And honestly, it took like almost a year and a half, two years for it to get out of my blood. It was a oh, hard just... transition for me. It was 21 years. So it took you a bit to chill, basically, where you could live a normal life and not be thinking about the company? Yeah, nobody would call me chill, but at least I don't act like I was acting then. I think I approach life a little bit different. Um, you know, we were a public company. We went public in 2005. I was a public officer. Like, that's a lot of stress that I, it, it's, people that know me, they're like, that's not you, man. <laughs> Yeah. You know, me and Cam are going, are going, you know, backcountry uh, grizz hunting in another 30 days. I mean, that's me. That's, that's me. That's gotcha. my life. Um, Corporate America, no. So speaking of getting out of court, how was the breakup? Was it a, a good breakup or was it a pain in the ass? Because, um, you know, Frank and I are uh, knuckle draggers. We haven't really had to be involved in anything like that. So was it ugly when you, when you guys separated or pretty clean? No, no, no. I mean, when you're that big, you have a board of directors and, and you have multi layers of executives and you have redundant processes and you have HR and, and it went fine. I mean, I think people ask me a lot about my partner, Kevin, and how close we are. And, you know, we're not. And, and and that's okay. People are different, man. Like we we beat to a different drum, but you know we had some little tension there at the end. But it went okay. None of those go great. You know, nobody's like fuck. There was no party. I didn't get no fucking party. No one threw <laughs> me a going away party. Uh, yeah, that sucks. After everything, you know, working there that long, I I could see how that would be a little irritating. Yeah, I didn't. That never bothered me. I don't look for credit. I was behind the scenes guy for. 20 plus years I was I I hated to go up and get on stage I mean I had to do it every now and then but you know I'm a big person of like your team makes you successful and that's that's the fucking end of the day that is it that's the way the world works yeah and that's a hundred percent uh true I, I would say I guess probably in the last six months or eight months since um uh my Chad my partner and I took this over you know, he, he's kind of on the outside looking in, but the biggest thing Frank and I have tried to do is just build a good, solid team that you can depend on and not have to stress. And 
that, you know, that's easy to do when you're, you know, between 10 and 20 million, you know, we get to 50, that may be a little bit hard to keep the the train on the tracks, but you know, right now we're able to keep a handle on it. And I, I don't know how big we're going to get my, my main goal here is to uh, hand the company over to all these guys so I can go hunt more if that's even possible. So I have very simple goals. Uh, I want to go hunt more and, uh, and I want the company to succeed. And, and I would say, I don't know, Frank, Frank started as customer service and now he's the general manager. So, um, I would say this is probably the best team we've ever had here. Yeah. I think what I got into as you scale, and um, I think, you know, whether this is for Frank or whether this is for you, is you really ask yourself, are the process, is the brand identity clear? I would say with you guys it probably is. Are the processes so clear that they can run themselves, and are they scalable? That's the answer, man. If the answer is no, they're not clear, and two, because they're not clear, I'm not sure they're scalable, then you know what you should be working on as an executive or as a leader. Don't go work on the shit that's working well. Go work on the shit that's not scalable. And I always did that pretty well. I really, I have a good idea of what scale is. Um, I mean, obviously I bumped my head, but, you know, I don't think 20 to 50 will be the wheels come off. I think if you went 50 to 150, you're going to find some cracks. Um, but you should be able to reproduce, um, 20 to 50. That's good. I'm glad you have confidence. Cause I don't, uh, <laughs> I barely graduated high school. I'm, um, yeah, uh, I think, I think at me, this, dude. at this point we're just, we're refining some processes like you were describing there. So I think it's, we can well, get there I, at some I point, but the pro amazing, so I'm pumped <laughs> for you guys. Yeah. It's, it's a unique business. Um, like when I say that, I, I don't know. Probably one of the things that makes us unique is Frank and I are very accessible. Um, I'll get on hunting forums or Facebook pages occasionally and just throw my number on there and say, hey, man, call me. Not a Kafaru page, just a normal, you know, page. And, and uh, we try to be as accessible to the anybody that's a customer to ask us questions. And then obviously we try to help out with just hunting information in general. You don't get that a lot anymore nowadays. You don't... Uh, I certainly would be interested to who I'd get a hold of, I guess, if you called like an Under Armour. I mean, we're, it's a totally different business plan. But when you can get a hold of, a, you know, the, the general manager or the president of a company and ask them, what gear do I need for a sheep hunt? That doesn't happen very often. I hope, I'm hoping that never changes. No. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I think there's a couple ways that you guys can decide to grow. If you want to keep some core things like that interconnectivity to your customer and that voice, that means some of the other shit that you do have to work really, really well because you're going to get pulled in a lot of directions. If you're going to grow your company through product extension, meaning new products that you don't make today or selling more of what you already make. So I, I really got a kick out of doing that strategic planning with a core group of people. I was, I got a real good, you know, I spent many, 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 many years running innovation and figuring out ways to like grow through innovating. Um, but that accessibility will be strained if in fact other parts of your company aren't running well. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, that makes total sense. Well, and, and, and one of the things that's, that's nice here is we, um, we, we don't really serve a master in the sense of there's not really a dictatorship here. We all sit down and talk it out, figure out what direction we're going to go. I'm a horrible micromanager myself. So 
I, I have really, I've surrounded myself and people that are a lot smarter than I am, which has worked well for me. And we'll just sit down and, and talk about it. The decisions that get made from that usually are better than it seems like somebody, I always hated people making decisions for me that shouldn't have been making the decision that didn't know all the parts and pieces of the decision. Yeah. Process. They're doing it in isolation. Yeah, no, that's the right way to do it. If you can do that, and you can think three to five years out with a core group and just put these milestones out there. I like to break things down into parts. Um, as I do with my training right now, I'm dragging a tire every day, and I have to break it down into small parts because when you think about how far I drag it, it's actually mind-numbingly impossible. So I just break it into little parts. But if you can break down three years into milestones, you'll find you'll start to grow faster. Gotcha. Yeah, well, I don't know that right now we could grow any faster than we are, but when we get to that point, I may be calling you and be like, hey, dude, I need some advice. <laughs> or Frank might. I'll be really happy if I can't answer the phone because I'm on a hunt. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, no kidding. How much hunting do you have planned uh, for this year? You know, I always do two big hunts with Cam. We always do bear and elk together. Uh, we've done that for many, many years. So him and I go to the San Carlos uh, Apache Reservation. We'll do that in September. We're going on a, a brown bear hunt in right outside of Unicleet in another 30 days. And then I usually have four or five mule deer hunts. Um, I'm infatuated with spot and stock mule deer. Um, I don't, you know, I gave up rifle hunting uh, many years ago. I'll do it with my kids, but I fully archery hunt for myself. So, yeah, no, I pack it in. I, I, I don't, you know, I have two kids. I coach lacrosse. I have a business. My big truck brewery is uh, we're launching a brand of craft beer for outdoorsmen. That's going crazy. We're having fun with it. So, you know, you just got to balance. I, I probably would like to hunt a little bit more, but I do some quality fucking hunts. I only go on the best damn hunts. Um, and that may sound a little egotistical, but you know, I feel like I earned the right to buy it. I have good relationships. I got a lot of points in every state and, uh, I'm going to go on the cream of the crop. Gotcha. You hunted with, um, you hunted with big Tino a few times, haven't you? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think five or six years ago I shot, uh, I think I didn't get one the first year. And then my second year I got a, a nice, uh, you know, Prescott Valley mule deer. Yeah. And I love that, but that's my sweet spot. I mean, that's spot and stock mule deer. And then I have a bunch of hunts I do with the Whitaker brothers, same thing, mule deer. I mean, I'm infatuated with it, man. People are like, oh, you need to go sheep hunting. I'm like, sheep are ugly. I'm going after mule deer. <laughs> <laughs> Frank and I talked about that. The, free, the sheep are ugly, and they're also unattainable by a lot of people. They're pricey. They're pretty pricey. When I say unattainable, yeah. meaning you, yeah, you got to have a pretty good bankroll. It's an elite. Go, yeah, be a sheep hunter. Well, I think I asked Frank once, and he said, for $30,000 to go on a doll sheep hunt, I could go on 18 mule deer hunts. I'm going mule deer hunting. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm buying some really good really good mule deer hunts for like 5500 bucks, seven grand. I mean, I know that's a lot of money. You can save up for it, uh, but it, they're really good hunts. I mean, you're talking 190 bucks all day long. I'm going to say, someone asked me if I won a raffle hunt at one of the shows. Um, if I'd be excited and I said, I'd probably sell it and buy a couple mule deer hunts. <laughs> and they're like, you're insane. Like, well, teach their own, I guess. I get that though. I can see that. And I actually, I find a lot of, uh, 
I think that's authentic, man. You're not just going to go do it to notch it on your belt. You're going to do what you love. Yeah. Well, the money thing in hunts and the, the do-it-yourself, you know, there's a lot of, um, well, actually, I, I talked to Cam maybe a month ago about this, uh, just a general conversation because uh, he gets hacked on quite a bit now for not doing as many backcountry hunts as he's is he used to. And, I mean, I, I get it, like, where, where people are coming from. They knew Cam when he did more backpack hunts, but – I got to be honest, I don't know that I could turn down a San Carlos elk hunt. I always want to do a backpack hunt two or three a year, but hunting public land elk does kind of suck. Um, it, it's not like hunting, to me, public land mule deer. Um, and when you can get into a place where the elk are just screaming and like the San Carlos or sometimes, um, it's it's addictive and it's hard not to go back. And I mean, with with the outdoor industry, a lot of times people kind of see what they want to maybe, or, or if if that makes sense. And so in in the case of when I'm 50 plus, I'm probably going to be using, you know, llamas and pack goats or something to get 10 miles in. And, uh, you know, when I can pay now that I'm financially able a trespass fee or pay for a landowner tag, I'll do that. Um, but I, you know, I feel I've kind of earned that to a certain degree. I mean, I've, I've, try to get the best hunts I possibly can. I just think people worry about too much shit they shouldn't be worrying about, I guess is what I'm... Yeah, I think I think you nailed it. I mean, one, Cam's hardcore, so, like, is he not qualified to do a backcountry hunt? I mean, our Grizz hunt is about as remote as you fucking get. I mean, we will be... I mean, we're going to be... We're, we're deep, and we're living out of our backpack. I mean, it's a, it's a remote back, backcountry hunt. We got to get flown in and dropped off, but that's just the nature of where you're at in Alaska, just to get to the quality bears. But uh, you know, and I've been on backcountry hunts with him in Wyoming, and uh, you know, it's not like he doesn't—he wrote a goddamn book about backcountry hunting. So I don't understand people like that, but I can see the flip side of it. You know, you have some success, and you can pay those extra fees to get into the right area, and and I don't know why people see that as like such a negative but you know i try to appreciate their point of view i mean i didn't grow up with any money my dad was in the military he's a vietnam vet yeah man we hiked into public land i understand what that feels like and you know what it sucks when you set up camp and you wake up in the morning (laughs) and there's a dude right next to you yeah it's part of it I, i think for 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 most people on uh you know, I guess it, when it's not attainable for them, they'll, they'll, you know, some people talk shit about who it is attainable for. I would say, you know, I just try to hunt as long as I can. And so some of those hunts are going to be, oh, Alberta mule deer. You know, you, you can't hunt out there without yeah. a guide. You got to have one. There's not, you don't have a choice. Yeah. Uh, but it extends mule deer hunting into October, um, which we're going to try to do that this year as well. And Frank's more of a mule deer nut than I am. Um, I don't know, Frank, if you could, hunt mule deer for four months straight i'm assuming that's probably the only thing about you'd hunt yeah i'm i'm kind of right there with kip i think uh mule deer are my jam and going on the goat hunts with you and uh you know in alaska and then just tagging along with with people who've had tags i think that's pretty pretty fun too but anything in that high country i i like and especially here in colorado we have such good good hunting for for mule deer i just it's hard for me to to want to hunt anything else when when i have the option and what frank how much of it is and this is definitely for me for mule deer, I feel like it takes so many hunts to perfect that craft. 
And if I was to go on all these different types of hunts, you know, mule deer, they just, they're finicky, they're, they're wily, uh, they, they surprise you, um, finding the big ones are even more difficult. And it's a craft, man. And it's like, I don't, you know, I work a little bit, uh, helping out the guys at, uh, a Montana knife company, Josh Smith and Brandon, but that's, if you're like a master, you know, forger, like you got to spend years doing it. So like, I, I look at it like I can't afford not to go on a meal deer hunt or I'm going to get soft. <laughs> yeah. I think we were talking about this the other day, but just, just with anything in general, the repetitions matter. So, you know, any, any time you can get a chance to, to focus on, on one species, I think it's, it's important and just spending time in the field. And, uh, yeah, if, I mean, kind of, that's why uh, a lot of times we, people ask if, if they should get both, you know, like a deer and an elk tag, what's well, kind of hard to focus on one and not the other or, you know, um, and be successful. Yeah. So I think with mule deer too, one of the reasons I like it is it's not as coveted as elk hunting. So a little bit less pressure is nice. And you don't really get to stock on elk very often where they're in their bed, where with mule deer, you know, it's a different game. Uh, you're finding them, bedding them down and getting behind them and getting a shot on them where elk you're calling them in and obviously different, you know, strokes for different folks. But, uh, with the mule deer, I, um, I'm glad it is not as followed as elk. <laughs> it would make my life hell trying to hunt mule deer. You know, what's funny is, uh, you mentioned, yeah, you don't get a stock them in elk. You don't get a stock them in their bed. Like you do mule deer or just the different dynamic of hunting them in the rut. I got really lucky three years ago at the San Carlos. I shot a nice 398 bull, and I stocked him in his bed. He bugled in his bed. And I took, I don't know, two hours to weave my way in to get to get in on him. And then he took one wrong step on another bull. But it was the first time I got that feeling of a mule deer stock on an elk. It was really cool. Oh, yeah. It just doesn't happen. That I mean, it can, but it certainly... Yeah, you know, mule deer ninety percent of the time we're shooting them in their bed or coming out of yeah. it. Where elk, it's I don't. I think I've stocked two elk in my life where they were laying in their bed and they were laying there for a reason because the wind was swirling and they were safe. And I gave it a whirl <laughs> and blew them out anyway. But yeah, I, I uh, yeah, I, 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 the hunting. What we're talking about, like the wisdom knowledge thing, right? It it takes uh, knowledge is knowing what to do. Wisdom is uh, having done it and, and learned it the hard way. And it takes a lot of wisdom to not fuck up mule deer hunts. I mean, it takes a lot of, I mean, stock wise, sometimes you'll pull it out of your ass and kill it on your first stock. But normally you've got, especially with a freaking recurve, you're going to probably screw three, four, five, or six up before you uh, even get close to shooting one. And, uh, you know, when you're stocking, uh, I'm, I'm assuming on your end, like you're hunting multiple different, you know, places. Have you hunted like Alberta, for example, for mule deer? Yeah, yeah, love it, um, love it, love the bean field, love crawling around, shot a couple nice bucks. I think my best buck was like a velvet uh, upper 90s, early, early summer pattern still, but uh, yeah, spot and stock and, you know, just trying to find any cover you can. <laughs> oh, yeah, well, and it's totally different from one area to the next, uh, from high country to Arizona to Alberta, you know, to Nebraska. Every place you go has a little bit different um, issue, I guess, of what you're going to deal with on a, on yeah, a stock. Yeah, the terrain. Yeah. And the terrain and then how they use that terrain and, and 
you know, the stuff you're stepping on, how loud it is, how noisy it is, how quiet it is, what they drink, what they eat, their patterns. You're right. It's like I'm pretty infatuated with Southwest Mule Deer, Arizona, uh, New Mexico, Southern Colorado. But, you know, I still do, you know, some high country stuff or going to Alberta or like, you know, some sand hills stuff. It's just totally different. It's, but it's fun. Fun. I like that eastern... Eastern Colorado um, with the Whitaker brothers is a hunt I've done, uh, Cam and I have done for a long time. He actually introduced me uh, to that area. I mean, that's like, to me, is one of the funnest mule deer hunts ever. Um, it, it's, it's hard. It's hard. We do it in November. It's hard. Don't you guys think it's kind of a bummer when you, it's like bittersweet when you tag out on your first stock? You don't get the, you, yeah. you almost don't get no, the I don't the get that with the recurve. No, I'm pretty, pretty fucking happy if that happens on the first stock. <laughs> I, it's a little different now that I have that in my hand compared to the, the compound. If I shoot like a, a mid-range buck and then I'm driving home and see a monster, I get really depressed. <laughs> <laughs> what's, your, what's your biggest mule deer? Uh, 245. Damn. Was that with the Whitaker brothers? Uh, no, that was, that was on... Um, the Deseret, I did that. I started that uh, hunting that many, many years ago when I bought it as a corporate lease for Under Armour. Um, the Whitaker brothers and I have shot like a right at 200 inch, but I ended up doing a deal with them where we kind of kicked out uh, six muzzleloader hunters, four rifle hunters, and four archery hunters. And now I have this this whole area between me and another guy, and we're just kind of see what we can do over the next five years on growing we think are going to be the, some of the biggest meal deer in the u.s yeah got well guy uh, yeah i'm sure if it, that's the thing i mean as far as um you have the uh, management of whitetails and y- it doesn't get talked about nearly as much with uh with mule deer uh as far as the the management side of things you whatever qdma or whatever they call it for whitetails you don't get that as much for yeah. mule deer, but it's doable yeah, I mean, if you can get a big block of land that has quality deer and you can just get them past that six years, get them into seven and eight, damn, those mule deer just change. Oh, yeah. Well, and you just you don't get them that old on public land as much as you, as you do. You'll get some old ones every now and then. Frank, Frank killed a giant. How wide was that buck you killed? I think it was right at 30 inches. Yeah, a uh, high oh. country buck, and that was on day 10, wasn't it? Day 12? uh day 10 i think yeah yeah frank likes to live alone in the wilderness so um and he you were eight or nine miles in 11 fuck it's a long yeah it was a brutal fucking that was a brutal solo pack out (laughs) (laughs) but you know deer like that uh it's doable obviously to kill big old deer in the high country but not like what you're going to get when you can manage them when you the stress level i'm finding out of an animal really affects the growth um you know that's definitely been proven for for whitetail um and when you can have that block of land like you're talking about and keep that stress level low and then the food source is high, uh, it's just a recipe for giant giant mule deer. Yeah, no, and, you, you know, you got those predators with coyotes and cougars, and if those are fairly manageable, yeah, they're, they're an amazing animal. I mean, I would love to see the, the buck you're talking about with Frank. I mean, the backcountry mule deer stuff to me, I would say, is still – the the one that I have the least experience on, I've probably done a half a dozen of them. Um, I would like to do more of them. So as I get get up in age, I realize my body can only do so much. So I got to do them now. Um, so, 
I'm excited. We got a lot of I got a lot of backcountry stuff planned over the next uh, three years. So um, hopefully get some good meal deer. But that sounds like a savage hunt. No, it's it's good. Um, did you are do you still hunt with uh, with Big Chino in Arizona, or do you hunt other areas or a no, little bit of every year? So I, I bought a I bought a I bought a piece of ground next to him. I'm gonna build myself a little off the grid hacienda <laughs> so I can hug those. Bug those guys every day. <laughs> I tell you, those guys, they, they proved a lot to me recently. I had a, you can, and I'm sure you get a kick out of this. Somebody sent me a screenshot from a Facebook hunting page, and uh, the guy basically said, um, you'd never buy a Kafaru pack if you hunted with the owner. Uh, I was in camp. He demanded his Shelby Raptor be shipped down because he didn't want to hunt with the guides. You know, just a horrible basically spiel about me and i'm like well the only people all they could be talking about is big chino when 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 you know when jp invited me down so i called jr and jp yeah and I you said, i was gonna be there i'm sorry i missed you i'm glad you guys had a great time no it was it was good i mean they're great guys so i i called them and i said hey uh do you know anything about this and and jp's very um very uh Oh, he can be angry, right? So he's pissed now. He's like, so the guy that was posting on this page was under a fake name, and Richard Rayburn was it was the name. And I said, did I was there a guy in camp named Richard? And JP goes, mother, <laughs> and he says immediately, no, it's this guy. And I said, well, who was that? And he said, well, he was in camp when you were there, and they put me in the outfitter tent or the outfitter shack. I think they do the same thing with you. Um, you know, just to hang out with the guides and crap anyway. So I'm like, well, hell, I wasn't hardly at camp to be mean to anyone. I don't even know what this guy's talking about. So what the fuck? JP called him when I'm on the phone, says, hey, and I'm leaving his name out, says, hey, dude, I got Aaron Snyder on the phone. And, you know, JP, what the fuck's going on? Uh, Well, and he does the spiel. And I said, hey, man, I said, I, I'm introverted. And I get that. I said, but when I was at that camp, I said, I lent, uh, well, I gave one guy a, a you know, a, a big 30,000 milliamp battery pack. I gave another dude my range finder. I, I, I took photos with people. I said, but I, I'm kind of introverted. And I said, so where did you get that I demanded my truck be delivered because I wouldn't ride with the guide? And JP dives in because that's fucking bullshit. You're spreading. And I'm like, easy, JP. Like, it's not that big of a deal, right? I just wanted to get to the bottom. <laughs> so he's like, well. You didn't really talk to anybody, cause so we just figured you were like too too cool for school. Thought you were better than everyone, and I was like, "Well, man, I'm introverted, but everybody that came and talked to me, I talked to them, and and I said I apologize that you, you know, think that, but man, I'm seeing what you're writing about me, um, and it's pretty fucking horrible shit. That's just not true." I said, uh, "You posted that I was too good for the guides and wouldn't ride with them," and JP lost it because obviously that's you know it's all bullshit, right? So. I, JP, he kicked him out of his camp. That says a lot about JP. He gave him back all his money he oh. booked us and said, Yeah, you're that's never... it. That's why I like those guys. You nailed it right there. Well, and he's that's like, it. My wife was like, Man, he makes you look calm. He's like, Look, motherfucker, I'm sending your money back. You are never, ever coming back to my fucking camp, you pussy. I'm like, Jesus, dude. And he's like, Man, we don't deal with this shit. Like, you were nice to everyone. You were a good guy, and this dude, because he was in the same camp as you, wants to feel cool and say, oh, yeah, I was at a camp with Aaron, and he was an asshole, which, whatever, right? But I, I was, it impressed me how JP handled that. He was very, very well, cool. I love, 
I love their family. I've gotten to know them. Michael Jr., uh, JP, uh, obviously their their wives. Uh, you know, I just I think I'm a good read of people. I think I spent a lot of time over the years trying to figure out how people try to like take advantage of me as I've had some success and and um, I don't know, man. I I love the country. I love that area. I love what they stand for. And I'm going to tell you right now, Michael and Junior are two of the best hunters, guides, spotters, glassers, grinders you've ever met. Yeah, yeah. They're legit. They are, and they're good. They're just good people. Junior and Mike are both just great to, well, and JP, they're both just great to hang around. And I could tell with JP, I'm like, okay, this dude's cut from the same cloth I am, just the way he, you know, he acts like, uh, you know, in the shit talking, right? It's hard to turn that off, and we talk shit constantly here. And so when I was down there, it definitely never, never slowed down. Oh, like yeah. he, JP, <laughs> I, I had a, I had a buck, probably a 30, 32 inch wide buck in front of me with the recurve. I couldn't get a shot. Oh my God. When I got back, he's like, put that fucking thing in your truck and get your compound out. <laughs> you know, he was just giving me a rash <laughs> of shit. All in good fun. You know, he's oh, a yeah. f- funny no, I, dude. I had Michael screaming at me. I had a monster 200 plus meal deer in the snow fighting another one. And then another monster buck comes in when he hears all this. This is all on film, filmed from a spotting uh, area about a mile away. And, and they're like, you fucking pussy, why aren't you drawn? Why aren't you shooting? Shoot one of those bucks. I'm like, dude, they're fighting. I don't even know which is the biggest one. Like, one of them had a broken rack. I didn't want to make a mistake. And, of course, it didn't all come together. One, like, stared at me from, like, eight yards and then ran off. And I was pointed at the other one. I got back to the truck after, like, dragging my ass two miles back to the truck. And all they were like, what the fuck? I'm like, hey, dude, I'm supposed to be tipping you. Um, Can can I get a back rub? Oh, shit. That's funny. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. they're definitely... yeah, they're definitely my 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 type of people, and and that, like I said, that said a lot the way they, the way they handled that. That is yeah, not I'm what I'm glad I, they stood up for it. Yeah, that wasn't what I had anticipated. I really just wanted JP to get me the guy's number so I could talk to him, and be like, "Man, what are you talking about?" And it, and it was funny, you know how the and Cam deals with this way more than I do. In fact, I messaged him about this the other day, laughing, and I was like, "Okay," when I'm on the phone with the guy, he was like, "Well." That was just the general consensus of the guys I talked to. And I said, well, was that the same consensus that they said my truck, I demanded for it to get delivered down? Because whoever said, you know, that obviously was making that shit up too. I had to drive to get to camp, right? I had to get there. So I drove my truck. I didn't uh, didn't have anything to do with riding with guides, but it's amazing when, when people want to talk, um, you know, shit yeah. about something, they'll find a way, no matter if I talk to everybody or didn't talk to anybody. Um, and it only gets worse as you're, you get more known, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I've been the Under Armour guy for a long time coming into camp and I've had to deal with that. And it, you know, I'm not in that position relative to you in terms of the products you guys are making and being so integrated into the hunting industry, but I'm glad you addressed it, man. I think you have to, we've done that. At, we did that at Under Armour. And when you sit back and kind of take a, a hands-off approach. Oh, it'll die down, or you know, let's just, just let's just think about it a little bit more. It's like, no, man. Like, it, it, it's I don't I don't let my kids do that shit. I'm not going to let other people do it. Yeah. Well, my kind of point was, uh, if for example, I had gotten into it with a guy, or 
you know, who who knows what, right? It made an offhand comment. Somebody took – those are all things where I was sitting there thinking, and I'm like, okay, I didn't really talk to anyone for – because, you know, you get up so early, leave, you get back so late. I'm like, you know, I went and ate dinner and had took a few photos with people that asked, and that was kind of it. And I – I and I'm somewhat introverted, so I'm sure that's where it, you know, came from. But it also – as a guy's posting on a public forum that I demanded my uh, truck be delivered under a fake account because he's too scared to post his real name. And I hope he listens to this podcast because what does that say about that person? Right? Like, I think that's what, that's it. What does it say about them? It's always, you just got to pause and be like, is this even about Aaron, a fake name to post something? There you go. Yeah. Close. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, those guys, I was surprised. He booted them out of camp and, you know, for principle, right? I mean, that says a lot about how those guys are and how they take care of their, uh, you know, their hunters. He was like, hey, look, um, I wouldn't let Aaron do this. I wouldn't let, he brought you up. He, and, uh, he said, I wouldn't let the most known guys in the world or the least known get away with this. Like, I want everybody yeah, to have a I family. Think he's right. I think he's, I believe him when he says that, you know. Oh yeah, he he. Uh, one of the guys in camp with me shot like a two forty, two thirty buck. That was in um, Richard. Yeah, Richard, and that dude was super cool, right? I mean, we both were hunters, but staying with the in the guide shack, and you know, he was just a good dude. And and when I got back, I was like, "How'd it go when you shot?" He goes, "Dude, I lost my fucking mind." He's like, I, "It was a miracle <laughs> I hit it." Richard, I can see that. Yeah, That's awesome. <laughs> he was. He said he's dedicated. Oh, he's been down there a bunch, and, I mean, he'll sit all day. He'll stop. He'll do whatever it takes, and just a super good dude. And so, you know, I can see if you become a family with those guys, the more you're down there, and I can see, you know, JP he and that family, they treat you like family, uh, you know, truly. Yeah, so, and, I mean, I fell in love with them so much. I bought the 40 acres next to them right there in camp, right? I'm going to have a little hacienda right where you were at. No, oh, no, no kidding. Well, we're all I, we're all going to be down there this year, um, both Frank and myself and, and Dana. So maybe we'll see you during uh, whether it be December or January. We can stay yeah, at the I'm hacienda. Yeah, I'm excited. I might want to try to go get one of those velvet deer. They're hard to, they're hard. Not as good a numbers, obviously. Later in the season, they're rutting, but in August, um, those deer will sit for eight, nine hours a day. So once you find one, you can really make a stock. Sometimes in that rut, man, they just, they're so bonkers. You want to put a stock on, they get jammy jammed up moving around all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And I ran into a little bit of both water holes were good, but, um, I got good stocks in and, and, uh, I mean, it's just a good, we kind of bounced back and forth between us. I, I got COVID in the middle of all that crap. So, you know, I would chill out and sit in a blind for a day, kind of recuperate, and then next day I'd hit the ground running, spot and stock, and and you've got that option down there at least towards the rut, which is you know depending yeah. on what is good. A couple of years ago, I was in camp with Green Tree, Adam Green Tree, and I swear to God, he'd leave with twenty arrows and he'd come back with zero, and he would have freaking horny toads, coyotes, frogs. <laughs> I mean, it was awesome. Uh, and then he ended up shooting one of the only bucks that year, too. So that's a cool place, man. I'm glad you got to experience that. And those guys are good guys. Big Chino, man. They're they're legit. I'm going to do some elk with them. I'm going to – they're almost friends to me. Like, we hang out a little bit outside of just hunting. So uh, they came out here and checked out my brewery. And uh, so I'm definitely down. Those guys are good good peeps. Yeah, heck yeah. 
Well, man, we're about we're about to hit an hour here. You got anything else you want to chit chat about, or 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 words of wisdom with all the the crap you've had to deal with Under Armour over your 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 last twenty years or whatever? Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I, one, I appreciate you guys uh, having me on here. I, I I dig what you guys do. I'm rocking one of your packs uh, that the big Chino guys gave me. Um, I'll be taking it back country with me and Cam here in about thirty days. So I'll bring you guys with me uh, in my. Uh, in my gear list. Anything to people listening is like, get fucking real, get serious, get hard. Um, that's about it. Everything else in life is a waste of time. Yes. Well, great words of wisdom. We might have to make that into a t-shirt. Um, well, man, I, I appreciate you, you coming on, hanging out with us. It's, uh, uh, probably it means more to us probably than you think, especially from the stories of Frank and I wearing under armor, 20 years ago (laughs) (laughs) i'd love to help love to help you guys any way can never hesitate to just reach out but uh you guys just keep kicking ass man i i congratulate you guys Uh, yeah thanks thanks Thanks. Thanks, kid all right man take it easy stay out of trouble all right thanks guys all right we'll see you